everyone. So this episode of Afro Horror is actually an interview I did with my good friend Jeff Howard, uh, screenwriter of Oculus, uh, The Haunting of Hill House, um, and a bunch of other movies that uh, you've definitely, definitely seen. He works alongside Mike Flanagan quite often. And we did this interview a few weeks ago, uh, sponsored by Final Draft. And we just basically answered a bunch of questions for about an hour and 15 minutes um, about screenwriting. Um, what, one thing I love about Jeff is that it's not uh, he's not really into talking about himself and his accomplishments. Um, even though he is very accomplished and, and should brag about it, he really just wants to help other writers. So that's what we we did and this is the audio from that day hopefully you guys get something out of it I think you will because he dropped some really heavy heavy gems here and um, yeah that's the episode for today hope you enjoy bye now, I'm gonna tell you what it is okay it's a dumbass white movie about some dumbass white girls getting their white asses cut the fuck up okay yeah I suppose Sandra Bullock is Miss Ethnicity right well no all I'm saying is that the whole genre is historical for excluding African-American elements. Well, that's how you get your PhD in black cinema, sister soldier. Hey, Jeff. Like, hi. Here we hey. it. I'm so glad we're here. Um, for you guys, if you don't know, uh, Jeff and I are like, Twitter friends first and then now good friends. And he reached out to me because he wanted a way to answer all the questions that he gets sent all the time in one fell swoop and that people could revisit over and over again. So this is happening because he requested it. <clears throat> so thank you, Jeff. Um, all right, there's so many questions and we only have so much time. So why don't we just jump in? Let's start with the, the biggest overview question, Jeff, which is like, how do I get started as a screenwriter? <laughs> Uh, yep. Uh, every answer that you, Hey, everybody, thank you for being here. I really want to make this as much about information for you guys as possible. So, uh, everybody has a completely different journey and it's really the reason that most, so many of these answers sound like cop-outs later is because it's really difficult to wind back in your mind through your own journey. Um, I, it, look, it's about two things at the end of the day. Number one, great material. You got to write something and put it away and forget about it and then read it again and figure out everything you did wrong. And you got to hone it and shine it. And, you, you know, you got to really push yourself to make sure that you are really have something finished. Uh, and then number two, you need to put yourself out there in, in a way to meet people. Um, a lot, there's a lot of contests. I know people who have gone, done really well through the contests and the festivals and all that stuff. Flanagan was a guy who did really well in the festivals uh, and it definitely helped. But um, reaching out to people and getting to know them was really the most effective way. I, I don't know very many people who didn't get in because somebody else held the door open for them. So, uh, you know, there's a massive advantage these days with Twitter and, and all of these things to get to know people. And my advice would be, uh, get to know them as a person, you know, let, let yourself be there as a little presence in their world. And eventually they're going to probably offer to give you a hand, you know, but the, the, the worst thing to do is just approach somebody out of the blue and say, could you sell my screenplay? Um, because the answer is, I'm totally obsessed with selling my own screenplays. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's still, and you always will be. It's like, it's a never ending. That's the never ending job. You uh, have to reinvent the wheel every three or four months or six months or a couple of years if you're in a good TV show. Um, but yeah, uh, look, have good material, refine it way beyond the point where you, uh, of all human reason, um, to the point where you can hand it to somebody with zero caveats uh, and just, you know, here you go, take a read or take a watch, which is even better. Make a short that's 
actually short. And if you're going to make it, make it really good. Um, those things are really good, easy ways to get noticed now. And uh, you'll find somebody somewhere in the industry, a writer, a producer. Um, when you're an unknown person, everybody talks about agents and managers. Producers are your best friends. They're vastly more accessible. They know every agent and manager there is. They'll get you into the right places. No, and that's such a good point you bring because I know a lot of people ask questions like, how do I get an agent? How do I get a manager? And they think when they do get an agent or manager, it's magically like the wand's going to wave and their career's going to change. Yes, amazing things happen when you do. But um, most, uh, most really big brand name managers and most really you know, big agents don't really show up until managers less often. Ma managers will show up a little more often, but most agents especially will show up this sounds weird to say, but they show up right around the time there's a deal to be made. And that sounds really weird and wrong, but it's just kind of, it, it just seems to work. And what you have to do is kind of sometimes look at it from their point of view really quickly. They are people with a job whose uh, job success depends on the people on their roster generating certain numbers. And that's how they're evaluated, you know? And so to carry uh, new people whose number is zero for a while drags down their ability to sell for their other clients, drags down their ability to look good at their agency, drags down their ability to get ahead. So they wait and they lurk and they help kind of like watch from the fringes and then they leap out at the last moment. And then from then on, they are really great at doing what they're supposed to do, which is opening the doors and putting you in. But you're always going to have to be your own number one salesperson. Yeah. And, and we had this conversation yesterday. I organically met my manager at a, a networking event, which it was, it was just like a, a town event. And we talked for two hours before I even knew she was a lit manager. And at the end, she was like, oh, I'm a lit manager. You're a writer. Would you like to be repped? And that took 10 years. But before that, I was still able to sell two scripts on my own. And even now with the manager, she is giving me you know, generals, but I still like have to do the work every day to meet people. I pass her contacts, producers. I'm like, here, here, here. So it's, it's a, it's a balance, right? It's like a dichotomy relationship. Yeah, you always will. But, um, they're a really valuable piece and they're really good companions in this journey and they can do something that you can't, which is they know like 75 people for every person that, you know, like you can break in getting to know five, you know, three, four, five, six, seven people and things kind of snowball when you have a good piece of material, they start passing around. But, um, the, the, the agents will always know vastly more. And, uh, you know, but most of them are really just lovely. <laughs> so despite so, what you hear. <laughs> um, one of the points that we talk about all the time is like knowing where you fit in the puzzle piece of the business and how that's important. Can we touch on that as a screenwriter? Like where do we fit in the system that is Hollywood? <laughs> um, <clears throat> look, when you were in high school, if you were ever at a point where you realized that you were the nerdiest part of the school, but you got invited occasionally to sit at the table where the jocks and the uh, really cool other people were, you know, the smartest people and the other people, that's the writer. You're, you're occasionally involved in very high level things. And for most of the rest of the time, you absolutely don't matter. Um, <laughs> and, but, but, which isn't, look, nothing is always the case. There's always the bell curve of life. You know what I mean? I'm just saying most people fall within that, you know, center part of the bell curve. And that's about where you land. I've always been lucky in the stuff that I did with Flanagan to have extreme access through Flanagan to everything that was going on. So when I would talk to other writers and hear other experiences, I was always surprised. And then, you know, as you go on and you do some other different stuff, you find out, yeah, you're, you sometimes are quite low in the informational totem pole. Um, but look, you're, you, they value you. They love you. Um, the first day that I've ever been visiting on any set of anything that was shot, 
almost everybody came by at some time just to say thank you. And, uh, you know, the, the, you know, oh, you're one of the reasons we're here and all those wonderful things that you hear about. So um, one of the great things when you do break into these things is that uh, the writer's rooms, the, the sets, all those things, the great preponderance of them are just lovely atmospheres full of great people. That is like how you would cast your dream high school if you could, you know? Yeah. And what I, what I was like encouraging um, the students that, um, not the students, so the members of the writer's mob that I mentor over there is I, I personally feel like, and let me know if you feel different, you shouldn't be writing to, obviously you should write things that you love and things that you want to see on screen. But if you take out the, the anxiety of, I have to sell this and just put into the passion of, I need to prove that I can do the work that you'll have a a much longer and better and stress-free career almost um, in the sense that you're just trying to prove to people that you can be hired to be a writer rather than I've got to sell this, I've got to sell this, and I've got to sell this in the beginning of your career. Uh, yeah, I, look, I think some people are luckier than others and that their taste overlaps popular taste. You know what I mean? So it's like, if you, cause you should always write to your own taste. If you're not writing something that isn't the movie or the TV show that you would sit down and watch, then you're probably making a mistake, you know, or, or you're probably trying to do something that you don't really need to do. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> what about, um, outlining? Cause there's such a big conversation on Twitter. Like, dude, I don't outline. I go straight to script. <laughs> yeah. I know people who can do both. I've done I've done both. When you first are starting, it's very hard sometimes to consider outlining because it feels like it's this impediment to getting to what you want to do. And then usually what happens is you get about 20 or 25 pages into something, all your first ideas are exhausted and you have no idea what you're going to do next and you stall out and you start thinking or you think of some other idea. So uh, I, I think that an outline can be your best friend. Um, I have always done like a three-page outline for me, just beats, um, just slugs, really, not even fully formed plots, but the things that take you through the whole story in about 20 or 25 beats or whatever you think it's going to be. And then I would uh, take that, like if I was going to go pitch it, I would turn that into like a seven or eight pager, or if I was going to outline it a little bit longer uh, with a lot more detail. And then before sitting down to write, I would take that 10, 8, 10, 12 pager and turn it into a 20, 22, 24 pager in Word, single spaced, that would contain locations and dialogue and would be your best friend when you're sitting there working. I, I think if you if you open Final Draft and you sit there and you start to puzzle, you've opened Final Draft too soon in terms of its screenplay software. You know, switch back over to the outline and, and keep going. Because, uh, you know, that outline is your best friend when you're sitting there deep in pages. And it looks different for everyone. Like, you're the same like me. I just do those little lines or bullet points of things I want to happen. Some people write scriptments, which are really intense, like drawn out um, outlines that basically is just missing a few dialogue pieces. But that, it looks different for everyone, but it is so, so helpful to have yeah. just this yeah. map. Yeah. <laughs> I like to morph from the skeletal to the, to the deep, to the, I guess what people call a scriptment. I like to leave this document that's like 20 pages long. And if I were hit by a bus, anybody else could write the script, you know? That's a good way to think of it. I never thought about that. That is. They're there. If it ever goes down, just make the call. <laughs> <They're there. laughs> I'm like, I know how to finish this for Jeff. Okay. <laughs> we have so many questions. So I'm going to deep dive into uh, questions from everyone who asked on Twitter and Instagram. And then obviously asking right now. Um, one question here is, and, and we kind of touched on this, but I do want to, we didn't touch on the second part of this. So I want to answer this one. Do you have any advice for a writer without a rep to get their pitch deck slash pilots read by networks and streaming service? So mostly the pitch decks is, are, is such a big question for people. Do, do we do them? Do we not do them? Like, 
Yeah, everybody's different and every recipient is different. But in general, people seem to really like them these days. They also really like a little short piece of something, you know? So you can make, a, everybody has a phone. <laughs> so like the final excuse to not make something short has gone away. So if you really want to make yourself a short little presentation presentation piece and put it on social media, uh, like the kid the other day who got noticed by Disney when he asked. It's like he made something spectacular. He put it out there, he asked, and it happened, you know? Um, if you do something good, everybody follows enough people and things are retweeted around these days enough that somebody will notice it somewhere. And that, you know, that's how it works. Um, usually the, the straight line, easiest way in is to get a referral from somebody inside. And the best way to get that person to refer you to somebody to break your new work is to have them sort of get to know you and get a little involved in your cause. And one of the best ways to do that is for them to have to, to see something 20 or 25 seconds go by and go, wow, that was really cool. You know, uh, Matthew yeah. Cherry is the king of that. <laughs> you know, yeah, Matthew Cherry won a whole Oscar <laughs> off of a little pitch deck that he made and he put on Twitter and got people to rally behind it. And uh, and even beyond that, he does it now for everybody else. It's a it's a yeah. really it's a great inspiration. He did not forget, you know, how how to start and do all those things. Um, yeah, great, <laughs> great guy. Great guy. And um, and also for, for us to, to cause you touched on something, you said you wanted people to get to know you and like you. It's technically COVID, right? So there's no like mixers or networking happening. And some of you, most of you are watching, don't even live in the US. But like I'll say again, Jeff and I met on Twitter and I literally, I think I reached out to you because that poster you're behind. I love Oculus. It's one of my favorites. And I, and I was just like, hey, I love Oculus. And we started communicating and that was two years ago and now here we are. So it can happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how, look, I, I mean, I got before such a time I got started by like the Maryland film commissioner and just hanging around and getting to know him until he opened up his little book of phone numbers in Hollywood and sent me out to meet a few people. It's like, it's, it's the, the referral process really works. Um, just, but don't, don't push, just be, just be you and be in that world and be a fellow co-creator. Cause nobody on the, in look, nobody, sorry, very few people <laughs> who ever break through that thing actually just sit around and feel super special. Most people feel like, you know, hey, the door got open for me. You're responsible to help open the door behind you. So, yeah. Okay. Brian Davis wants to know where is the best place to find producers? To find producers, like it means to contact and reach out to them. Uh, yeah. Look, I'll I'm going to tell you a secret that nobody will admit to, but every single person who has ever made a movie or a TV show at some point, maybe not daily, but in reality, daily, uh, opens their phone, goes to Twitter and searches the title of everything that they've ever done and then reads everything about what they've ever done. So if you want to get noticed, uh, you know, maybe uh, that's one way to do it. Another way is just, uh, you know, uh, look, what you can't do is just straight up approach with your one liner approach with your material. The way that I used to approach people all the time was I would find somebody who I admired or somebody who had recently closed a big deal. And I would figure out a way to approach them usually through email. And I would say, uh, I'd just like to pick your brain for like 15 minutes about how this thing happened. Or I'd like to pick your brain for about 15 minutes about what you do when you get stuck in act two. Or I'd like to pick your, you know, it's like, and if you offer yourself up as somebody who is seeking information, just by human nature, sometimes, you know, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes these people will get a little involved with you and then eventually they'll take a look and they'll open the door if it's there. And if it's not there, you have to be ready to hear that too. And you have to be ready yeah. to hear, hey, like, because uh, the, if a hundred and the answer back to look, you hand me something, I read it. I say, I don't think it's there. You say, well, listen, this is my voice. It's there. I'm telling you, all you can go by is your own personal taste in the moment. And if you are a person who hands things out to people like managers and other producers and stuff, 
based on your own referrals, if you hand over things you don't believe in, that it's going to affect adversely the future of you handing things out to those people in, you know, in the future. So you can't just do it for everybody. So, but nobody sits down to read something. Nobody sits down for a meeting, hoping that it goes badly. Everyone sits down yeah. on both sides of the table, hoping like, Oh man, I hope this is the one, you know? Yeah. And so you, you said something I want to ask too. When people say, uh, write for your voice or your tone, like, what is your tone? Like, what does that mean for you? I always give the same answer, which is uh, I like the tone of life from movies like Raiders and Casablanca, where life is sometimes funny, sometimes sad, sometimes thrilling, sometimes weird, sometimes there's a song, sometimes there's a relationship, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I just like that tone. And I think if you, I never wanted to be too associated, like in horror, everybody's perception is from the beginning, it's just, dun, 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 yeah. you know, and like, and it's like, no, you know, live with the people. Uh, so, you know, tonally, I think that question is changing. And I think that maybe one of the best answers these days is to say, you know, uh, my, my tone is like the tone of the, the lives of the people that I know, you know, that's a great answer. I'm stealing it. <laughs> <laughs> Please go get that studio job. <laughs> um, Chris Robert asks, can you talk about, um, agitation in terms, especially for Hill House and what changes you made and then how, how does a screenwriter take a book um, that's true to the source material and make it as wonderful as, as Hill House? That's a great question. Well, Mike Flanagan adapted that uh, book in his imagination to the basis of, you know, what became that series. And then a whole bunch of us got together and sat in a room and elaborated on it and expanded it, turned it into 10 episodes, you know? Um, so I think the actual adaptation approach, uh, would be a better question for him, but as a close observer to the process, um, I think the idea was to take the spirit of something that we all loved, but had seen executed a lot of times and executed in a way that uh, heightened the emotions and the accessibility because, um, look, we all learned from the movie Meet the Parents. Universality is an amazing theme. Everybody has to meet the parents at some point. It's like, the thing about Hill House was every, almost everybody has siblings, everybody has family. Everybody believes that their past of their family was pretty screwed up. So there was a wide range of emotional stuff to relate to inside there. Um, so just, you know, look for... When you take a piece of material like that, what you're supposed to do is honor the material completely, but also do something reflective of today. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you change everything into weird, you know, you, you, you got to keep the spirit. If you, if you don't keep the spirit of something like that, then you will alienate the people. Right. Um, I like this question because it's been a discourse on Twitter that I've been keeping my eye on. It's advice for older screenwriters and people who think they got a late start in life. And if it's too late for them, uh, let's all find out together. Right. I don't think so. Uh, look, I, the, the thing about TV, especially TV is great because the real bottom line reality, um, I see Kirk Moore tweet about this a lot and he is so correct. Uh, writers <laughs> hire writers in TV. It's a writer's medium. So it's going to be up to writers to decide who voices they want around and who they don't. So when you break through those ranks, writing, Movies is much more freeform. Writing TV is almost like a boot camp process of breaking in that a lot of people can actually subscribe to and kind of follow. Um, once you get in and you get into that position, you know, take a look around and and don't just do the, you know, do, uh, do the room that you've wanted to do. Do the room that reflects your reality and the reality of the greater world too. So that's all any of us can ask is that these rooms reflect the world. And it's the best thing about writing is, you know, it's not too late. You can get older and still write. Like, it's it's really down to your material. It's not about it, your age. So 
Yeah. When I look, when I was a kid, there was this baseball player named Roberto Alomar. And I'm not a big sports guy, but at the time, everybody in Baltimore loved Roberto Alomar, you know? And the thing about him was he was just supremely gifted, natural athlete. But then we got him a little bit later in his career and we got to see him turn into this crafty pro. And it was like, he could not do everything physically that he used to be able to do, but he was so crafty that you could make up for it and teach and be very helpful. So you know, but also the thing is at a certain point, you know, you got to ask yourself, well, what is the culture of today and who is the audience and how, you know, um, you're usually just a generation behind. Usually you write for the generation right behind you, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Rachel Angeline is, is for me, but I want to ask you, I want to pitch it to you as well. Uh, can Charday share how she sold her work on her own before being rep by a manager? Yes, I can. I entered contest and, uh, subsequently I entered the TV one screenwriting contest their third year and I became a finalist and they optioned that script. And then they came back to me four months later, um, to an open writing assignment, right? Uh, for a, a movie that they wanted to do on their network that they knew I, I submitted the only horror, by the way. I was the only one that submitted a horror out of thousands of submissions and they wanted to do it a thriller horror. And then I wrote that work and they, they bought that and it premiered last year. So I have had really good luck with contest. Um, and that was a free contest. I didn't pay a hundred dollars or anything. So I always encourage people who are just starting, like it doesn't hurt, especially the free contest, just to try. And I specifically wrote that script for the contest. It wasn't something I had pulled out of my repertoire and, and tossed in there. I, I looked at the guidelines of the contest and what they needed. And I wrote something that fit that. So it wasn't, it was a win-win either it gets made and great, or if it doesn't, it's fine. I, now I have a script that fits this like area. Um, what about you, Jeff? What about contests for you? I, I never entered any, but that is 90% of everybody's story. Um, almost yeah. everybody has something teed up to sell or just about sold. And then uh, managers or agents are brought in. Um, usually agents more than managers at that point, because the manager will jump on a little earlier if they get to know you. I was very, like the first thing that I sold was I got to know a producer online and we exchanged some emails back and forth. And then finally was asked uh, for some ideas and pitched an idea. And the producer was like, uh, I really like that idea. You should write an outline. And I was like, I was working with another guy and we were like, we don't know what, a, what an outline is, you know? So we wrote a script in like four days and we sent it to him and he read it. And then on like Saturday night, he called me at home and was like, Hey, this is awesome. We're going to go to the studio. And like by a week later it was done at Sony. Um, oh, wow. and, it was, and, and at that point, like, screwed myself up for a long time because I thought, oh, well, this is how things happen. You give somebody an idea, you write it in four days, and then <laughs> right. it goes off and does its thing, you know, like, didn't realize that was like a, an anomaly. But uh, yeah, make, produ look, producer relationships are wonderful. They're very accessible people. They're, um, you know, they most, a lot of them are really good writers themselves or came from writing and, and they're yeah. out there, you know, just uh, ask them questions and, and stuff, but don't, uh, don't be too overt, you know. My little trick uh, is I like I, I, movies or TV shows that I like. I go to the IMBD, I have the pro, and I find the producers. And, and most of the time they're on Twitter and then I start following them. And then yeah. complimenting them all the time. That's my little <laughs> trick. Um, I like this question. Should horror movies be more focused on character building and motivations or on the plot and the hook? All? I mean, I, like, I, ideally they're they're kind of intertwined, but I do think... One of the tricks that I, you know, one of the tricks I really believe in for a horror movie is uh, take your time uh, to care about the people because otherwise nothing scary that happens is ever going to matter. So make sure that you care about these. I like to do this thing where you, 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 
you do scenes about the character for as long as you possibly can, even as they're kind of driving the plot forward, but really it's about, you know, this person, uh, right up to the moment where the audience could kind of have the chance to go, oh yeah, I forgot it was in a horror movie. And then something happens, you're like, oh no, this is all going to go wrong. <laughs> like, this, is, this is all going to go terribly, terribly wrong. So. Yeah. Um, and you're right. It has to have all those, but, and also all scripts, comedies, like you really need to define really good characters. We can either root or hate for, or, or your plot is just like, it's, it doesn't matter. I think. Uh, yeah. Look, I, I've talked about this a little bit before. I'm just going to say it real quick. There's a little style that I, I don't think it's for everybody, but this is something that's really worked for me for a long time. And I uh, used to do it with Mike a lot and we, you know, whatever it's, this is a, we do the, you know, three acts sounds really, um, tough you know so we uh, you know in the past working together and me alone i like to break things down into four little pieces instead of three the -hmm. first act the first half of the second act the second half of the second act and the third act you know and the idea is generally once charted a whole lot of movies in terms of their plots and their character development and everything and almost without fail the first act is exactly what you think there's a there's a character you know, or people, depending on what you're doing. But there's, you know, there's a, there's a person or an ensemble, let's just say a person. There's a place that that person is. There's a personal problem. And then there's a sort of a world problem that comes upon them. And that doesn't mean like Independence Day. It just means, it can mean anything bigger than themselves, you know? And then in the first half of the second act, faced with this world problem, but, uh, you know, stilted by their personal problem, they kind of flail around failing at the world problem because they're so focused on the personal problem. So at midpoint, there's some event that draws the two things completely together. And in the second half of the second act, they sort of put aside their personal issue for a while to focus on the world problem. And they get really close to winning, you know, at the end of, at the end of that third piece, the end of the second act, when the whole rug is pulled out from under them. But when they rally for the fourth piece for the third act, what they discover is that by putting it aside, they've inadvertently solved that character problem to a certain extent and can now start the world problem from beginning and go through to the end uh, and get really close to winning, but not win. You know? Yeah, I remember when we first met, you broke down the four-act structure for me. It made much more sense than a three-act structure. And it, it's helped me with my writing completely it's it's easier bites and what you do too is you give yourself a big event at the end of the first act a big event at midpoint and a big event at the end of the second act and that way it's you're looking at far you know it used to be you'd sit down and go i've got a 57 page act two to think of you know it's like no i got a 20 page bit to work through before my gears shift in terms of overall storytelling and like that doesn't work for everything but it's not a bad like workbook to start off of and look at you know look at stuff a whole lot of fiction of any kind lands that way and real lives weirdly yeah, which is interesting because, you know, I know a lot of you are in film school right now and obviously you're taking screenwriting courses and they're teaching you a certain way, which is fine and that it does work. Some people really um, react well to the three-act structure. I know for me, I, I, I couldn't figure it out with the three-act structure. I didn't go to film school either, so maybe that's why. But when you brought up this four-act like alternative, it really just opened it up for me. And So whatever way you guys are doing it, just get it done. Yeah. <laughs> Out. <laughs> what you do is you learn those rules and then you find out how to paint within your own style you know exactly. what i mean but what you what you eventually circle back around to no matter how avant-garde you think you get you eventually circle back around and you go oh this is uh, somehow managed managed to fall into the same sort of parameters as the general structure there's just one other thing while we're on hardcore writing advice because i think every like yeah. i said everything is different for everybody this is only my little experience but uh, a friend of mine said something to me one time we sold a couple of screenplays together and then he started a reality company and then made like a mint selling it to the french you know which is very interesting but uh, <laughs> he said to me this thing one time that was so bright and i think about it all the time he's like 
almost every character only has two journeys. They either gain confidence or they learn to care, <laughs> you know? And yeah. it's like, when you really look at stuff, it's like, damn, almost everybody is either gaining confidence or learning <laughs> to care, or they switch a gear to one, or if you have two, one does one and one does the other, or if it's a group, they, you know, it's like, you know, so just something to keep in mind. Uh, there's no rules, but you, you, if you follow the parameters and you, it's, it, if you follow the parameters and you mirror the things that are finished movies or finished TVs shows, just a little bit, like you adhere to that little inherent structure, you'll get so much further than if you just reject it from the beginning, you know? Yeah, exactly. And um, I, I really like the idea, someone told me this too once, and it's like, there's no new stories. There's just like timeless classic stories that we all just kind of differentiate from, like whatever that word is, that we all kind of branch <laughs> from, you know? Like, like yes. Hamlet. So, <laughs> or, yeah, and, but the, spe- the special different part is what you bring to that stuff or how you right. mix it up or your own personal experiences and stuff. So that's what the real, that's kind of what the real trick is, is, is that you learn these sort of mental templates that eventually, you know, as you get into that other stage of your career, you know, as you, as you go beyond the pure inspiration stage to the workman-like stage, you know, the worker stage, the, those tricks and those, and those things stay in your mind and you see how they repeat and work. Um, in, in a lot of really good stuff. Um, I had this one from Colin Matthews. Hey Jeff, how many scripts did you write before you received any attention? How many scripts before you got a rep? I like this question because it's always a numbers game with people. They're always like, how many scripts should I have before I can like go? And, the, and the, I know what my answer is, but I'm curious. Uh, to know your well, I, I mean, mine was like 10 or 12, but I, I will say yeah. this. <laughs> had I taken any one of those 10 ideas say and rewritten it three or four times it would have done the job i did not need to bounce endlessly forward into the next interesting world those interesting worlds that pop into your head when you're about two-thirds of the way through doing something are designed to screw you you know you must write them down on a pad or put them in notes and then get back to it in a little while as the dessert to doing what you have already set out to do or you have to tell yourself, I completely abandoned what I've begun and I will never return. But yeah, just, you know, trick. yeah. That's the trick. You get these great ideas. You're like, I'm going to move on to the next one. And then you leave this one behind that could use a couple more polishes and it would be really sound. I, I'm surviving off of one great pilot right now. I have sent my managers about four or five um, pilots, but the one pilot that I spent enough time on that is, it took like four or five revisions. It's the one that gets me all my general meetings. Mm-hmm. and it's the one that's giving me interviews. So I'm surviving off of just one right now, but the others I have just in case, but I do need to go back and revisit them and make them as strong. I know. Yep. Back to questions in a second, but I think I just want to say one more thing. If you are, if your question is, I'm thinking about moving to Los Angeles or I'm in Los Angeles, what, what's, what do I need in my little kit bag in order to uh, start this up? I would suggest, uh, you know, as Ms. Sellers is saying, one completely finished, perfect script, movie or pilot that you can hand off to somebody with no caveats is ideal. Uh, a, a few really awesome ideas in your back pocket for when somebody likes that and asks you what's next is fantastic. A finished, as professional as possible, as well performed as possible, short, that is legitimately short, is a gigantic stepping stone, whether you consider yourself, ju- you know, just a writer or a writer director or a producer or whatever it is that you consider yourself having a finished short that shows what you're capable of is a really big step up. So, you know, a, a finished short, a finished script, 
or two, uh, and and uh, and several really good thought out in your mind ideas that you could pitch to people on demand is I think would what you know a really good place to start. When you say a legit short, like what what time limit are you talking about? I, look, I think the smartest move is to keep it in the single digits. You know, I agree. like I, I, you know, because uh, the first thing people are going to do when they open up your YouTube link or whatever link that you send them, when they see twenty four minutes, they're going to go ah. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like you know, <laughs> and so you're, you and like it, just ask yourself, do I already want to start from ah? You know what I mean? Right. Or like, <laughs> say you've cast your best friend. And it's going to be really hard in your life to cut the best friend's bits because they turned out to suck. You must cut them regardless because they'll still be your friend after the movie works, I promise. You know, but it's like, you gotta like, you, you, you can't put anything in that short where you're like, ah, I wish I'd reshot that. Or, Ooh, that's, my, that's the one little, you know, little nasty bit that I wish I could cut, but I, I couldn't go back and reshoot it. Just cut it. <laughs> Nobody's going to know. But you, attention you spans know? are, like you said, so short nowadays. Attention spans are so short. And the same argument goes for scripts. I, from a producer's standpoint, when I was a VP of content acquisitions and development, we got so much influx of submissions that honestly, we didn't give it more than 10 pages of read if it didn't work in the first 10 pages. So Adam Robitel is this great director, you know, and uh, his, he writes with this guy, Gavin Heffernan. And back a few years ago, me and Flanagan and Heffernan and Robitel were competing against each other for this piece of IP from, you know, from one of the studios. And this is legitimately the entire thing. It was 59 seconds long. It was video game style graphics, and it was a point of view of swimming deep in the ocean with the bubbles and the breathing until they came upon this like sunken haunted house. And then they were out and that was it, you know, and it was like, and they bought that and they were like out soliciting takes on this like 59 second clip. So, and they did it because it just suggested a captivating world, you know? So it's like, you, you, one last thing back to questions when you are pitching somebody if you do get a hold of somebody what you are pitching them is you are teaching them how to pitch your pitch <laughs> you know yeah. because they're always going to go report to somebody else there's always people further up the food chain nobody is going to sit there that 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 creative exec or that person that you meet or that state producer that what you're training them in and it, it, you're giving them a rehearsal of what they need to then go do to pitch it to the people that they need to go pitch it to so that's never forget really, that that's a really good piece of advice a piece of that never goes away unless you're sitting in front of like one of the seven green light studio heads but every other meeting that you're in in the world you are programming that person how to pitch the material that's it that so work together really good. we like to do an exercise for pitching in writer's mob like uh pick a show like friends and pitch it to me and if you cannot like like get it down and make it make sense even from a show that you even know and love how are you supposed to pitch your own you thing yeah. If you can't say your idea in one non-compound sentence, it is too complicated to be a movie, <laughs> you know? So anyway, you should, uh, you should do some more questions before. Okay. We, uh... More questions. Those were kind of, those were signs I was picking and choosing. Um, um, we've answered a lot of the contest questions. Um, here's one, JL Ivory. Endings can be so difficult. The beginning of a script can be set up strongly, but be lost with a quick or unsatisfying ending. How do you handle the endings of your script to ensure they deliver? Uh, my great hero, Billy Wilder, said this thing one time that if you have a problem with the third act, the problem is in the first act, you know? Uh, so go back and take a look and see. Um, never start anything without knowing where you're going. Doesn't mean that you can't change things along the way or end up in someplace unexpected, but you should always really have a full map of where you're going and know that ending before you get there. And the real reality is 
Ah, not to bust any weird illusions, but quite often within the scope of a movie, the first act is a whole bunch of events going forward, and the third act is very similar events unraveling backward to land you in the yeah. same spot where you came in. So just beware. The answers for a third act are usually in the first. Uh, don't linger, you know? Um, nobody wants the seven little codas that wrap up every little person. It's like, unless it's Animal House, it doesn't work that well. So... And uh, Sean Jasowski, I'm so sorry. Um, we kind of touched on this, but I think steps are important. Hi, I have a screenplay I really believe in. I just have no idea which route to go to try or pitch and sell the script. What are some of the first steps you might recommend? Yeah, like we said before, I, I would uh, not be afraid to use social media to track down some people who have similar kinds of work in their uh, little bodies of work and follow them. And don't be afraid, you know, when something's appropriate, don't force yourself into every conversation. But if you've got something interesting to say about something they post, try it. And after a couple of times, people generally notice uh, is number one. Number two, you probably know somebody somewhere who knows somebody who knows somebody wherever. Uh, even the assistant, the second assistant to this person at that place, it's like everybody here is on the move up. And, and you know, my, my former agent, you know, who I was with forever and loved, uh, it, their first assistant that I ever had is now a senior VP at one of the studios who I pitched to a few times. It's like that, that yeah. little journey happens. So get to know all those people. And usually you enter this industry with a class of people around your own age and your own experience level. And they, it's, it's not the friends you grew up with necessarily, although that's sometimes the case, but it's like, you know, you, you get to know these, this group of people and they all sort of rise together. And what you eventually find out is, uh, you know, that, that, that eventually you all mean something together and you start doing, you know, you can start making things happen on your own, but it, it's not an, it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's not an overnight success proposition. It's a lot of, uh, knocking on doors and being told no. Yeah. If you're, yes, be prepared to play the long game. If your family is not uber supportive, figure out some other way <laughs> to get through that, that you know, and a lot of people will tell you to play it safe, but my my version of it was always I never wanted that I never wanted to work in the industry before I sold stuff in the industry just for myself because I always had this theory that people memorize who you are when they meet you for the first time, um, <laughs> and I also never wanted to get too caught up in uh, something that was going to mentally engage me to the point that I would disengage from the you know from this you know so like I was a pastry chef for most of the time. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he still <laughs> and it's, he still bakes and it's amazing. So. Um, I, I, to real quick before we get to Matt's question, Ava DuVernay always says, you know, everyone's... Ava has everyone. a question? No, no. I'm flattered. Ava, oh, <laughs> Ava, I know. Ava's here. She's learning. <laughs> she's, what a letdown. We're teaching her. No, um, she always says it's more important to reach out than up. Like, everyone's always trying to reach up for her, but they're not looking to their left and right and looking at the people that's there with them who will be her in five years or 10 years. So yeah, a, a huge part of my career has been, you know, collaborations and stuff under the, the Mike Flanagan banner. And when Mike Flanagan started out, one of the things that he did is he took like teen his closest friends, put them together and made a, a film for next to nothing, which showcased what everybody could do. You know, like yeah. not, not everybody has to be the director. You can all pull together under different things and still get the job done. You know, it, it's, you know, it still helps. Exactly. So question from Matt Prilip. Sorry, Prilip. How do you handle the balance of show more, say less without giving too much direction in your action sequence? I says, I like that one. Yeah, I got a lot of self-imposed rules. Like there's never a, if there's an action block that goes over three lines, I, I get a little antsy and try to break it up. Uh, always try to break up action blocks up into what would be about a shot or a thought, you know, in your mind. Um, 
used a lot of little dash dashes at the end to propel the action forward, not coming to what to feel like a lot of hard ends. If you open somebody's script and you see this giant block of this, you will not read it. Uh, no matter what level of the business that you are in. So break that up and make it look interesting on the page so that people will stick with it. Um, you know, be look, George S. Kaufman is a really old writer guy from the 30s who had this amazing rule one time. He was like, I go over and over and over my stuff until I've removed every unnecessary word, you know? And it's, yeah. like, it's, it's really not a bad idea. So Yeah, also, that's, that's the key. Yeah, what were you saying? Yeah, keep it lean, just keep it lean on the page and, you know, put it away for a couple of weeks at a time. Uh, cause you, you can't really, really look at it if you just like finished it at midnight and then you wake up at you know 9am the next day and you scan through it really quickly and start sending it to people. It's like, you yeah, know, you re- a couple of days to really give yourself some time. To Can you hear me? Uh, the real truth is the longer you wait and put it as, oh, what happened? Can you hear me? You're breaking up just a little bit. Yeah. Okay, oh, cool. I can hear you. Are we back? Cool. cool. Uh, anyway, cool. Um, uh, Lauren Sidney, do you have any advice for aspiring writers who have a full-time job and a kid and two dogs when and how to find the time and discipline to keep writing? You are on baby number two. So I, I really like this question because I'm fascinated about how you can find time to get your work done. I feel like I'll know more soon, but, uh, um, <laughs> one, one thing that's always worked for me is, uh, I like, I don't like to sit at a laptop and consider it to be work. You know what I mean? I like to be just doing things in life and letting your subconscious wander through all of the things that you should be doing at that time. So I guess the real trick is to never be present in your actual life and always be thinking about this stuff while you're pretending to be present in that life. So that then when you do get your hour and a half to sit down at the laptop in the middle of the night, you're just really spewing out all the stuff from your subconscious that you've worked out throughout the day. I'm sure Diana loves that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I know she's aware of that answer. So. <laughs> That's great. Um, uh, oh, okay. Cassie, just Cassie. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for organizing this. So my question is how to write an exciting teaser. <sighs> Uh, look, I think that you just, you know, you want to start late as possible, get out as soon as possible, hit really punch the audience hard on a moment and don't put a single word into the draft of it after that punch comes, you know, cause your reader is your first audience. And if you give them a big emotional punch and then you write, and then he recoils away and backs into the wall. It's like, Oh, I don't, you know, I just, I just blew it. But if you just give me the emotional punch, you know, Carlos is a lot you know, and you're like, oh, you know, and then you go out, but you know, that's where you go out. I love that. that. That's great. Don't give them another word after the punch. Um, okay, we already talked about competitions. Um, here, about resources, everyone likes to ask. This one's from J.R. Boyd. What books for writing do you recommend? I'm also going to send it to podcasts or videos or anything like that. I, look, they all have their merit. You should probably read everything that you think that you should. You know what I mean? But uh, the single best exercise that I ever did, and I don't know that anybody else has ever done it, but I've told a million people, I wish everybody would try it, is I took some of my favorite movies and I watched them while typing the script of them and hitting pause and yeah. chat, charting them through with time codes and everything. And like when you know, when you take Raiders and you sit there and type your own scripted version of it as it's happening along, you realize how lean what Raiders is, is, is on the page. You know, there's like, it's not all about you. There's, there's 140 other 
awesome professionals who will follow and help fill out so many of these things. You know, you do not read to, you know, like describe the exact knot of the Jovitos outfit as they're chasing him through the woods. You know what I mean? So uh, they're, they're a little leaner than most people think, but it's a great exercise in seeing what you consider to be some of your inspirations and favorites, like what they really look like on the page. Or, or how you would put them on the page. Um, just, you know, give it a try. It does, it, you know, don't cost I, nothing. I personally like uh, Script Notes with John August and Craig Mazin on a, as a podcast. I think it's a brilliant podcast. I really like ScriptSlug.com, which is a website that has so many screenplays for you to just download and read. That's, I was self-taught in the sense that I just read every script I could get my hands on. That's yeah. all I wanted to do. We've all already watched this stuff forever. It's ingrained in yeah. our in our in our mental capacities, whether we think it is or not. It's just sometimes you're going to do up to oh yeah, and then it'll also have the sad side effect of ruining a lot of your favorite entertainment because <laughs> yes. you're like oh now I see through how everything works. So. I, I have a great question here from a Danielle Montley. Jeff, you promised me a question from your mom. Seriously, though, thank you for giving me the time. <laughs> uh, I'm sure she's going to lurk around and watch this on YouTube. So. <laughs> My mom is way ahead of me culturally all the time. She's the, like, you know, she was the one who told me, like, you've got to watch this show, Breaking Bad, when it first started. You know, and it was like, I, I don't know, Mom. I guess I'll check it out. Or she, you know, she used to call with, like, when Walking Dead was a really big deal, she would call with Walking Dead spoilers from the East Coast and stuff. So, uh, yeah, supportive parents are fun. My parents just grew up. They just love movies and TV. So um, I think they just like showing off to their condo friends. <laughs> Lisa Spicer, do you use photos or graphics in a script? No. I never have, but I understand why people would and why people would want to. And I don't think that any rules are hard and fast enough that you shouldn't, if you really feel motivated to do it. But if you do it, I would just make sure you have a really good storytelling reason. I would make sure that it's not something that you could paint with the words in the regular format. You know what I mean? Um, I know a lot of people are doing that front page two thing now, which, you know, it's all cool. Everybody, it's, it's never meant to be hard and fast. It's meant to evolve with every single person who touches it and does it, you know? Um, I like this question because it, it is a topic, especially when it comes to the fellowship competitions. Rachel Angeline wants to know about spec scripts and if you recommend writing spec scripts. Yes, I think that everyone should have one perfect spec script done somewhere, you know. Uh, and by perfect, I just mean it's it's exactly what you want out of it. You've shown it around to some people who are honest reads and they've given you some notes. You've rewritten it a few times you've had distance from it enough to understand what's really on the page versus what was in your head uh but yeah look and and there's still a spec market you know um yeah it it, it does happen and, and they're not they're they're also they're just never bad to have around you know what i mean like uh i met a producer the other day through twitter who i really have always admired his movies and he just started liking my stuff and we just started talking and you know i, I just sent him the second script and this week he just wanted to read stuff you yeah. know and it was like it's that that stuff's kind of fun so yeah i would have them around at least one but i wouldn't have 12 because if you have 12 it means you really have zero because that yeah. means that you didn't finish any of them you know what I mean? unless you're 94 but if you're if you're right, right, in your right. 20s <laughs> and you have 12 scripts you might want to think about finishing two of them all the way to the, to the completion line and, and consider the other ones just good ideas that you have around. 
just that's my own thought and then I, I I put those resources in the chat box and someone asked my dog's name and, and our Twitter handles that was asked to you. Just those small little questions that I could just get answered for you guys. Um, but, uh, Peter, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Pete Scorzarto, besides close friends, what's a great way to get feedback on my script? Oh, man. I mean, that is hard, right? I, I, some of the best things are just, I would trust more people who just read books and stuff as you know what I mean? Then I would trust somebody who is industry wise because somebody industry wise, you're always going to have some filter. So I would just find yourself a really fun civilian. Like one of the great secrets, ah, man, I wish I could remember his name and doing him such an injustice. But one of the great secrets is the Robert town, the Chinatown guy just had a dude on the payroll who he just bounced stuff off of all the time and who would contribute to pages and ideas and things. It's like, you know, um, find that resource somewhere in your social circle is somebody who you know to be a legitimately good reader you know cozy up to them and ask them if they just like to just not format not this not that but just give you feedback on it as as writing you know yeah your mother is probably not the best my mother at least is not the best person to bounce ideas off for my scripts and but currently you're reading like 35 or something scripts that were submitted to you on twitter Right? I, I, yes. And I've had friends call me and they're like, Oh, you're so dumb. You're going to get sued. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? I just, uh, I, I think it was in a conversation with you on Twitter about yeah. something and you know, um, I don't know, whatever you, you, I believe in that. I mean, you know, my family, <laughs> it's like, I just, I think it's time societally and, and globally and everything for people to make it a little easier for new voices to get in. And I get a little resentful when you see, I don't know, it's a big industry. I, yeah. n- none of us were meant, very, very few people die working in this industry in their 70s and 80s, you know? Right, it, right. It, it's, it, it's, not a, it's not a guaranteed lifetime Supreme Court appointment. You know, you're kind of of your moment and, and then you move on. And I think there's definitely a big, the deck has been reshuffled globally right now. There's, there's, it's time for other moments too, uh, and probably mostly other moments. Anonymous attendee says, uh, do you copyright before submitting scripts? I've read you should, and I've always, it, it's always read it's unprofessional and secure. I've read you should, and I've always read it's unprofessional and secure. Oh, so they're asking, like, should we copyright? And if you do, the rumor is that it's unprofessional and secure if you are copyright. I don't know. What I would do is if you do do it, I wouldn't put copyright number JX seven, four, two, six, you know, on the thing. And like, you know, like anything like that, cause it just looks weird and intimidating to you. Um, it's a way yeah. friendlier industry than you think. I'm sure there is, there is theft and stuff. I'm totally sure. But mostly people are just looking for that great thing. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I, yeah, look, make, do whatever you need to do to make yourself feel secure, but I wouldn't flaunt it in people's faces. I would not open carry with your, you know, various no, registrations. The APA thing is also weird too, when people send you that and you're like, I'm just trying to help, I'm just trying to read your stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't trying to get into a, a whole legal relationship with you. I was just yeah. trying to take a look. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, Brandon Girl. Gil Brech, sorry, I'm terrible. Is cold calling production companies that made movies uh, like what you were written worth the effort? If I have a polished horror script, is it okay for me to call Blumhouse and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about the movie I made? You Good can, luck. but it's never going to work. I, I've, sat, I've sat in the lobby and heard those calls come in sometimes while you're waiting for a meeting and stuff. And it's just, there's just people there who just dead end you. The phone is, you know, uh, there was a day when the phone was the one outreach. You're, you're going to do... 
I mean, look, I'll tell you a dirty little secret about most production companies. You could probably intuit their emails if you really thought about it. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, it's <laughs> like, so, uh, you know, reaching out to people is, is, is through a, an easel. It's, it's better through means where you have a filter and can take it in at the time that you want. Nobody's just sitting around going, I've got seven minutes. I'll take that one, you know? So, exactly. um, yeah, I would use some more modern techniques yeah, for the same that- idea. That's the key. And Jason Bloom is on Twitter. So why don't you just. And, <laughs> and active and is a lovely and guy. And uh, so are the people who run the company with him. Uh, two, well, two of the three people who really um, help run the company are also pretty active there too. So, uh, you know, they're, they're especially, um, you know, the, the one guy who just, you know, literally came from fandom and from fan writing. Like he knows exactly yeah. what it's like. So, yeah. Um, Chris McConnell, at what point does a writer drop the other jobs and live off writing? What is your honest opinion off of living off streaming? We talked about this privately before. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I lived in Baltimore and I sold my first script and I waited and I sold my second script before I moved because I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I wasn't going to turn into one of those stories. You know what I mean? And still the honest truth is you just, you know, you never stop worrying. It's like, you know, there's this like belief that at some point you'll be free from worry. And it's like, that's just completely untrue. So, uh, yeah, just, you know, everybody has their own personal comfort level. If I was a single 21 and a half, really confident in myself, I would just move here and take my chances and work whatever it was just to get acclimated into the world. If I was 31 and I had two kids and I had a job that was paying for my health insurance, I would probably wait until I made sure that I had like five years of that in the bank for myself to be, you know, cause, uh, you know, everything takes longer than you want it to. Nothing moves at any kind of fast. Everything is a glacial pace. It's not unusual to sell something and get your first check nine months later. You know what I mean? It's just, it's not, it's not hideously unusual. So uh, you got to protect yourself. That's everyone's goal, guys, to live off of our work. (laughs) And I'm not even there right now. So Um, Stephanie Ogle, do you see an uptick in horror stories being made with lead characters being people of color? I think everything is going to have an, an, uh, an appropriate uptick. And I hope that all worlds just sort of end up reflecting the world. Um, but yeah, look, this is, this is a great time. The deck has been reshuffled in the world. And also coming out of that has been the recognition by a lot of people saying, oh, shit, you guys were right. <laughs> we, uh, we, we, we have some barriers and some distance between us that needn't exist. Um, all the best stuff always springs up from people who are just giant fanatics about this kind of stuff so you know uh welcome breakthrough now it's a perfect time to do it you still no matter what the political or the or the whatever blows in the wind the best way to make sure that you last is work your stuff until it's really finished wouldn't you feel really good about it don't show anybody anything that you have to say to them hey i'm still doing a little bit here in the middle you know what i mean just completely crush your material and you will be fine. But right now also seize, seize the moment and, and make, and get your, and, you know, start, start being a uh, voice in places where people can get noticed. Um, I don't mean to keep going back to Twitter, but people notice. Well, Twitter is uh, like the hub for writers. It's where they're, they're all on it. (laughs) So if you are writing and, and, and you want to meet other screenwriters, I've met most of them honestly, through my Twitter. Um, we have a minute left, so I want to answer this last question because it's going to, it's going to wrap us out. Sergio Leroy, will you be starting production company soon? And to extend that, Jeff, uh, what are you working on and what can you tell us that you're working on and what's coming up? I know that guy. 
Hey, Sergio. I know that Hi. dude. Um, <laughs> what am I working on? Yeah. Uh, well, how, how do you start a production company? Was that the thing? No, it's, are you going to start your own oh. soon? <laughs> I, look, I don't know. What I would love to do is collaborate with, uh, as Sergio knows, like continue to find different and fresh, fun voices to collaborate with. And sometimes that means writing something for them. Sometimes that means writing something with them. Sometimes that just means opening doors. I, I, I don't want it to be about me, but it's like in, in future, that's where, it, well, in, over the course of the last year and a half or so, and uh, for the next foreseeable time, I, I would really like to do that. Um, it's just, it's more fun for me. My, look, my pitch to people uh, is, um, let's do some of this stuff together and uh, you meet everybody and then you don't need somebody like me next time. Yeah, that's really true. And then what are you, because we're, we're, I'm so sorry, you guys, we, I want to answer more questions and stuff, but we're running out of time. I want to know, Jeff, what you're working on. Um, so people know where the, you know, what's coming up for you. And then, um, and then I'll tell you, I'll tell them your Twitter handles and stuff and where to find you. Cool. And I can do a few more if time isn't a big issue. It doesn't matter to me, but, uh, I, okay, cool. Yeah, Mercedes, just, just get out of here. We'll wait for Sadie's okay. word. Just do it until she turns out the lights. But um, and run through questions really quickly. Uh, Alexander Aja movie with uh, Nick Simon and Alex writing it for Amblin, uh, which is in like a like a like a tech that is almost like those old you know books where you can choose your own sort of path adventure style thing. Uh, love working with Alex. He's wonderful. Finished the series with Flanagan that he's just poised to shoot called Midnight Mass that'll start up uh, as soon as startups start up. Um, did another one for Netflix that's uh, waiting and ready um, with a great showrunner who I really liked and a really great uh, staff to be with. Uh, that's like a giant franchisey kind of thing that'll be done as soon as the world opens back up. Um, and, uh, you know, I just wrote something that I'm really, uh, I, I wrote something I really love, just kind of mostly for me, but I'm just starting to show it to people so we'll see how it goes. Um, okay, because we actually have 15 more minutes. So. Oh, great. Well, let's burn through some just straight up questions let's, let's for burn people. Straight up questions. Vincent Minetti, Jeff, how do you determine if a scare scene is going too far? Do you think about that at all? <laughs> you know, I was talking, Alexander Aja, who I was just talking about, Alex, I pitched him something and uh, he literally sort of recoiled a little bit and was like, well, I guess that's just one way we could go. Uh, don't, I don't know. <laughs> and I really, it's like, I, I, look, you got to free yourself from any filter and go as far as you humanly possibly can. And chances are the horrified reactions of people known for terrorizing people will later tell you if you went too far. So don't be afraid to go too far. That You'll find your best stuff there. If you're uncomfortable, you're probably doing your best stuff. Oh, you're doing your best stuff. There's, there's a movie called um, Human Centipede. So <laughs> I don't know if anyone will ever top that. Um, the bell curve again. <laughs> yeah. Aaron Palmer, uh, what length of the shortest idea? We said single digits under 10. I, I think it's smart just because you don't want to challenge anybody's mental bandwidth. If yeah. I see 20, like I said, if I see 24 or God forbid 41 or something in the checkout, same with the script. If you see... A guy sent me a script that was awesome from that Twitter thing. It was 131 pages, I think. And I was like, look, I got through this because of my commitment. But like, if you cut 12, 13 pages out of this thing, you're like really talking about something here. Like 15, I think it was 20 that he cut out in the end. So uh, yeah, try, try to be lean. It's not, it, they're not meant to be Godfather 2 all the time. Or, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, let's see, let's see, let's go. Um, Oh, we already talked about that. Oh, Mary Rivers. Is it a must to send a query letter to agents? Querying, querying question. <clears throat> uh, I, 
a must in that, that that's how they'll get to know you. I, look, I think it's always worth a shot and you always have to try all the various ways that can move your cause forward. But I think as you do it, you have to like tell yourself in realistic terms, this is probably like a, you know, a very, it's a shot in the dark. It's a very small chance, you know, but uh, the best way to get noticed is to, um, you know, like I said, that's somebody that's somebody that you know, or to get it passed around within people who are peripheral or attached in some way to somebody, you know, it, it's just better that way. But try the query letters. I, there are people who read them and I, and I have to assume sometimes they do work, but I, I, I don't yeah. know that they're hugely effective today. Uh, I like this question. Ir Dijong, what is the worst or more, most difficult note you ever see? And then can you also talk about taking notes as a screenwriter? Cause it's such a big part of our job. Yep. Um, uh, the weirdest note that I ever got was in a room with a with another writer where I just uh, felt that there was something, it was a really uncomfortable situation because there was something that I just, in the situation, knew was just never going to be able to play, like it was never going to work. Mm-hmm. And I kept mentioning it over and over because I was really kind of trying to save that writer from pitching something that I thought was an accidental laugh, you know? And uh, got through the course of the thing and the writer pitched it. And, you know, finally the writer said to me, like, uh, you're trying to squelch my voice. And I was like, oh, boy, you know, like, uh, no. So, uh, you know, you just sat back and waited. And, you know, when it came time to pitch the showrunner, it died a very terrible death that did not need to happen. And I just, you know, kind of made everybody kind of feel bad to see the showrunner go. Like, what? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Sometimes you're just trying. I, I think we, what we need to remember about notes is nobody is trying to assault us. Um, but right. I will tell you one very quick one about notes. Like, look, you're going to, once you take the money, you're going to take the notes. The more you fight it, the more wrong you're going to turn out to be. Uh, the thing is, um, the problem with notes in most of our popular imagination is that it comes with a bad suggestion for how to fix the problem. Forget the bad suggestion about how to fix the problem. They're not forcing that on you even. Look where they got bumped out of the story by the thing that they suggested to replace it with. Figure out what sucked them out of the world there and then come up with your own better answer that doesn't screw up 37 things later in your script, you know? And they'll be open to that and they'll hear that. But what you can't say is, screw your notes. You know, it's like, that's just not, those are people who read a lot of scripts, see a lot of movies, make a lot of movies and TV. And when they get bumped out of the reality of something by something, even if their suggestion of how to fix it sucks, take a look at the spot. There's something there. Yeah, I agree with you. There's always a note behind the note. You know, sometimes producers or network execs, they don't know how to express like why this point of the story isn't working. So they'll give you a ridiculous notes. So you just have to look and say, what's the note behind this note? Yes. Now, and the, the, ob- the opposite side is, is that quite often these notes are excellent in ways. And it, like I tell people like, look, not all your notes are going to be great. Just like you don't think all my pages are great, but we're going to, let's work yeah. it out. But a lot of notes that are awesome. The best note ever heard in my single life, do this really quickly, was Oculus. Um, Mark Evans, who was one of the producers, we were sitting there with the original conception of the script, uh, which was that half of it took place in their childhood house and half of it took place in a warehouse where the mirror was. And he said, hey, you know, for production purposes, it might be better if it all took place at the house. And, And it was like it opened up this light bulb of going, you know, a lot of emotional stuff could really happen if it was in the same location in both timelines. And that uh, completely changed what it was. So like a lot of times they know what they're doing and you should give a listen. Give them a chance. Um, uh, Pete Sergato again, um, he said, I'm writing a new feature and my characters um, are able to be played by any ethnicity or orientation. Is it frowned upon to not be that specific into character-ish intros? 
Um, I, look, I think sometimes you need to be specific and sometimes you should just leave it to the imagination. You know what I mean? I think if there's a very specific reason for a specific character to specifically be something, then you should certainly say that. I think also if you're a young writer from any, you know, any group of society and you want to write a script that identifies in your group of society because that's your experience, I would feel free to totally write that in as your experience and your thing, you know. I, I would not limit yourself from doing it, but I wouldn't feel pressured to do it all the time. There's a script that I wrote one time that has a, um, a weird twist with a, a very famous... Uh, you know, real life uh, black human being in it. <laughs> and uh, the only character identified by race in the entire thing is that person, because it's like a person who you kind of know, but is hiding in another identity. And so it's like, it kind of, that was the only person where it had to be this one specific thing. So, and everything else. And I've given that script to a bunch of different people and I've gotten reactions like, this person would not hang out with this group of white people. Or this person would not hang out with this group of black people. This person would not, and it's like, well, that's, that's all on you. You, you completely read that into there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, this one by, where did it go? Because it was a good one. Cassie. Hey, Jeff, someone said Hollywood is the factory and China is the wallet. What do you think of that? Especially, and, and to expound on that, um, international as, as U.S. Americans writing scripts um, and thinking about the markets and other countries. Like, what does all that mean? Yeah. Why are there so few comedies? Because they don't travel abroad. Uh, almost yeah. everything is 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 international market driven right now. Um, it became, you know, it started, you know, years ago as a way to get movies financed that you couldn't get financed straight through the studio system. And now it's become a really important aspect of it. Uh, like I said, it's never meant to stay as what it is at any one given time. It's always going to morph and change the, the finance entities when I was 20 are now completely different, you know, today you know, so, uh, everything evolves and changes. <clears throat> so just be ready to adapt. Um, it's, it's a living, amorphous, free flowing thing that will continue to adapt. So just be ready to roll with punches. I like this question because, uh, it's not silly. I think it's really cute. Nikki Hemming, this might be a silly question, but in entourage writers would send their scripts to Vince and E to try and get them on board with their projects. Is that a realistic take on Hollywood? Do actors ever partner up or attach themselves to scripts or is that just not true? Yeah, they do. Um, and a lot of them have production companies and, you know, if, you, if there's an actor with a production company, the last thing you should probably do is pitch them something for that actor to star in because they get all that stuff through their agent. If there's an actor with a production company, try to pitch them stuff not for them to star in, you know, yeah. but uh, otherwise, yeah, they are there. And, you know, um, I, look, if you get one of the top tier, you know, high ranking people who you, you know, instantly know that, you know, then that, what a great bonus. But if you get somebody who's kind of like, even people that we would perceive as big or perceived as somewhat average in terms of what they mean to the industry, you might actually close as many doors as you open. But yeah. look, if you can get it, I would, I would never, you know, I would take it. Uh, actors sell your movies, by the way. So um, if you can get them. <laughs> get Sometimes, them. but direct, you know, but, but directors do always. <laughs> like, That's true. The, the, the number always. one thing that a finance entity is looking for is a director that that they know will make a move is competent enough that they can release it. So that that's like the, that is the number one figure anywhere in this industry, no matter what, in, in terms of movies in TV, in it's obviously movies, it's the right. EPs. Yeah. But although directors are now invading television, uh, like look at uh, Mike Flanagan, you know, directors are invading TV Mike and becoming Flanagan EPs of those things and doing them. Fincher, you know? Fincher, um, yeah. So, yeah. So, and it's a good way to go. You'll get better TV that way. 
um, you know, long-term. Cause uh, you know, one of my things that always scares me about TV is like, you do, you know, you do this great room and then it's sort of a divorced process from the directors who then go bring those things to life. It's like, yeah, you know, too bad we can't work a little more hand in hand. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's. Linda Frothingham, how do you feel about changing our current scripts to be more contained, shootable scripts, so there is more of a chance it could be produced in the next few years? I think you're smart to do it subconsciously. I think less smart to say, you know, let's look at our new COVID world. You know what I mean? But I think, uh, yeah, look, if I was writing an action movie right now, I'd probably be looking at Gettysburg, you know, like to say, hey, here's a, here's a bunch of people outside. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, you know, uh, I, I would be aware of it, but I would also be aware that nobody knows what's going to happen right now either. So just, yeah. you know, um, let your mind wander where it does. But you you, you need to... You'll discover as your imagination continues along, the more you professionally you do this, you place filters on yourself through experience to help streamline your ideas because it's a very narrow bullseye that you're trying to get through. And one of your biggest jobs as a writer, if you're going to sell stuff to people, to finance entities and studios and stuff, is to remove as many reasons to say no from what you're doing as you humanly possibly can you know so uh as as you're conceiving things as you're executing things if something comes up and it's like hey that's a possible reason for somebody to say no i just wrote one scene that's a page and a half that takes place on the lunar colony you know it's like well maybe that's maybe that's a quick out you know what i mean or so just be beware of those things you're trying to remove reasons for people to say no uh so and we're going to take one more question so we can wrap it up for Sadie. Um, Ramona Robinson, first of all, she said she loves my hair. I don't know if it's your, or she just has great hair, but yours or mine. I don't know. Secondly, where do you see the role of horror? <laughs> where do you see the role of horror in film as this new normal and in the near future? Uh, I, I, horror is always around. It touches the deepest emotions uh, that any of us have, just the way the comedies do. They're like inverse little twins. Um, I, you know, horror and comedy are twins that were separated in the womb, you know, and became two different entities because they touch all the same stuff and they hit all the same kind of beats and the feelings and stuff. And you can't pitch scares just like you can't pitch jokes. Uh, but I, I think horror is a fabric is woven into the fabric. I think. A lot of generational shifting right now. Young people love horror and young people are stepping in to take over large portions of the industry. I think you'll see more horror. I think what you won't see is uh, bad horror. You know, like I, I think I, I just never I don't I don't think people are interested in just, you know, silly, stabby. It all comes to nothing. Body count horror. I think that especially in this new world, they're going to want to see something that at least talks to them about an emotion or something real. Oh my gosh. We guys, we did it. We answered 52 questions and not to mention that Jeff is also answering questions on his Twitter all the time. Um, your handle is what? At Jeff Howard 33. Jeffrey Howard 33. Yeah. All right. So, I, although Jeff, Jeff Howard 33, also lovely guy, great pictures of his dogs, <laughs> real sweetheart. Um, so you guys can find him there and I'm on Twitter as well at I am Charday Sellers. Um, and I try to answer as many questions as I can, but I usually just pitch them to Jeff because he knows more. Um, everyone, thank you so much for coming. You guys asked some really, really great questions. And um, we had so much fun doing this. Um, this will be live or not live, but this will be available on the final draft website. And I believe they're giving me the audio to put on my podcast, Afro Horror, which is about black horror films um so you'll be able to revisit this over and over again and 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 uh 
maybe we'll do it again sometime for a part two if people really liked it like they said they did they're saying they liked it i can drag um, some but, friends too yeah you can get some friends let's get flanagan in here um any any last words for our lovely attendees we had so many great people ask questions Oh, no, thank you. I just hope it was practical for everybody. I, the, the number one concern coming into here was to not just hear myself talk, but to try to get across practical advice. I know it sounds frustrating about how do you break in. Um, everybody's story is different. You will find your path, but there's just rules you can follow. Just get to know people. Yeah. And it's like he said, it's all a crapshoot, you guys. Like, none of us really deserve to be here. <laughs> so we're all maybe at work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Afro Horror. Please subscribe and leave a comment if you like what you heard. We want to send a special shout out to Jaron Hemphill for our amazing logo design. Thanks, Jaron. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at at Afro Horror or on our website, www.afrohorror.com. No copyright infringement was intended while recording this podcast.